Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. And if you're thinking that doesn't sound like Gab Marcotti, that's because he's swanning around America, I think watching some team called the Eagles in a, a sport I'm not familiar with. But we're going to talk about something far more important, English football, while Gab uh, yeah, watches a bit of NFL or whatever it is. I'm Matt Dickinson, Chief Sports Writer of the Times, and I'm joined by two of my finest colleagues, uh, sitting opposite me is Bill Edgar, our football writer and stats guru, as uh, you'll all know. And uh, down the phone line from somewhere in Yorkshire, Lancashire, north somewhere, is Ollie Kay, our chief football correspondent. But don't worry, this is uh, one week only I'm going to be sitting in this chair. Gap will be back next week with his uh, usual unique uh, enthusiasm. And uh, you actually do get a fix of him on this show. He sat down with Raphael Honigstein to discuss his uh, fine new book, Klopp, Bring the Noise. So that's coming up, but only after we have looked back at the Premier League weekend. Uh, And we're going to start actually with uh, Southampton Everton. I I know probably going into the weekend, Liverpool-Chelsea seemed the biggest game, but... um, Results have have proved otherwise, and I think we're going to start on the blue side of Merseyside, and, well, I think shambles is probably the word for Everton at the moment. Ollie, wouldn't you agree? Uh, I think there are various words, none of them them complimentary, and and, and in fact, a word like shambles might, in in fact, be um, slightly flattering to them at at the moment. They they just look awful, dreadful, horrific. Uh, I think there was a lot of overexcitement when they spent all that money in the summer, and then, of course, they lost Lukaku and they didn't replace him. And I think some people were, and not me, um, were were expecting too much of them, given that there was a, an imbalance in the squad. But despite that um, imbalance in the squad, and despite you know it's 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 um, you know various teething issues that you'd probably expect, you would expect so much more of so many of those players. And what they look like is either that they just look crushed confidence-wise, or that there's just no spirit or no desire among those players it's just it's just terrible one game after the next and you can't say it's all the same players because there were such wholesale changes between the lineups from um atlanta on thursday to southampton on sunday and the same outcome and you know obviously we can talk about david unsworth as well and and, and him being found to be sort of totally out of his depth but i i just really feel feel sorry for him because you know that he is giving his best and and I don't really think you can look at every Everton player and, and say that the same applies at the moment. I think, uh, you know, there's there's no doubt that, um, well, there's, there's many different ways that Everton are going wrong at the moment, but is, is surely this is something that can be built just fixed with a good manager. You know, this is a decent squad. I mean, this is a top 10 squad, surely. So is yeah. it that simple? Um, it would. I think it can make a big change. I mean, you look at players they brought in in the summer and certainly one or two have proved not not up to it at all but the likes of Michael Keane and um, Gilfie Sigurdsson I mean they're they're real class players but they've been dragged down by this general malaise I mean the the whole whole team seems demoralized a lot of the problem yesterday against Southampton was that the midfield runners of Southampton weren't being tracked so so that's how many of the goals came so it was it's just a kind of a a lack of teamwork a lack of it's a feeling as if everything's collapsing around them one problem uh, they've had is at fullback, which hasn't been mentioned too much. And three or four years ago, Leighton Baines, I thought, was a, a title-winning standard player. He could easily have... Uh, he was linked with Manchester United. I thought he might 
well go there, replace Patrice Ever and be at United, you know, for five, six years or something. He stayed at Everton and he's really gone downhill a lot, but he's not been replaced at all. And then on the other side, there's Seamus Coleman, who got injured um, uh, towards the end of last season playing for Ireland. And now he's out till, I think, till at least mid uh, January, and they've he's just not been replaced at all. They've tried a, two or three different players, they've different systems, right wing back and right back. They've got to get a new manager in. It's five weeks now since they um, sacked Ronald Koeman. I mean, this must be approaching some sort of record. You know, now and again, clubs take a long time to replace their permanent manager, but usually by this stage, they've said to the caretaker manager, "Right, you're here till the end of the season, or, or, or you know, or till." you know giving them a definite time span as it is there's just uncertainty has gone on and on and on which is is not helping at all i i did my column on uh, mr mashiri uh, on last friday morning and I, I can't imagine he was thrilled uh, if he's read it um ollie do you can we have any trust in him to bring in the right guy and who is that right guy um the, the two o'neills have been mentioned uh, obviously, they tried for Marco Silva to the point where they got a cease and desist letter from Watford um, last week. Who do you think they'll go to? Who should they go to? Well, when uh, when Cumin was sacked in, I mean, what was it? It was it was October, wasn't it? Or yeah, about yes, thirty five days. Yeah, I think we're talking. It was it was at that point nine games were gone, and yes, I think they were in the bottom three at the time. But it didn't look, you know, when people say, oh, they need a Sam Allardyce, they need a Tony Pulis, they need somebody to just keep them up. That looked a really sort of extreme suggestion at the time because you thought, well, no, they they, they just need somebody who's, who's going to go in and pick them up and, and, and take them forwards. But now, you know, five Premier League games later, and, and of course the, you know, the, the Europa League games, which have probably brought even more pain and anguish and humiliation, um, it does look like a situation where they they do need a firefighter and they're not going to get Marco Silva now. If Marco Silva is the guy that they are desperate to get and if they, crucially, if they think they will get him, which I don't think is certain at all, but if that's the case, then they do need to look at an interim type and an interim type, you know, it could mean a, a Hiddink or, a, or somebody like that or, or more likely it could mean a, a you know, an Allardyce type or a Pulis type or an O'Neill type. And I can understand why none of those um, options would appeal to Evertonians because, you know, I think they, they went into this season thinking, well, we're now the the newest member of the elite. And, and, and it's it's quite a come down to be thinking, oh, we're going to appoint one of those sort of firefighting managers that Crystal Palace and West Brom and clubs like that appoint. But it does look desperate enough to think that, well, what they actually need is somebody who's going to just go in and keep them up. Which is a long um, way from um, long way from Mashiri's quote about you know this is uh, now the Hollywood of football the Northwest you know we got Guardiola we got uh, Mourinho we got Klopp and and he was talking about Everton being you know having a super superstar manager to compete on that level but they, they, they simply can't get a superstar manager at this time of the year no, can no I don't think so no um, one manager might be worth considering who's not been talked about and I think Ollie touched on it in a column was uh, Eddie Howe at Bournemouth he started uh, badly this season and, and so when the early clubs were sacking their manager he wasn't mentioned because people thought oh maybe he'd been found out or something but sure enough they've uh, recovered and they're doing really well I mean when I look at his what he's done on paper you could argue he's the greatest manager in uh, English football history taking uh, Bournemouth from the bottom of the fourth tier up to mid-table in the Premier League having done, done it twice and now he's there again in mid-table and also uh, the type of football he plays is 
perfectly expansive. So if they're really pushing to be a, a Champions League club, well, they, you know, they're not thinking about going to Sam Allardyce and playing the long ball or something. Well, well, Eddie Howe on the face of it would fit that idea. Um, Ollie, are you? A, does that get your vote? As Bill said, I mentioned that in in October when everybody was saying, "Oh, it's got to be Dyche, it's got to be so and so," and and Eddie Howe just wasn't mentioned at all because Bournemouth. Um, Happened to have made a slow start to the season, which I thought was just depressing that people would 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 suddenly forget about Eddie Howe's previous eight years because they've had a difficult eight weeks. But that probably says a lot about English football. But if you looked at next summer, or indeed the summer just gone, I think someone like Eddie Howe would have been perfect for Everton. I think somebody, somewhere like Everton would be perfect for Eddie Howe. But in November or late November, early December, when it's a relegation fight, when you're not going in with a pre-season to get your ideas across, and they're that kind of, you know, he's that kind of manager. Sean Dyche, in a very different kind of way, is, is that kind of manager, a sort of builder. Um, a lot of the younger managers want to sort of build. They don't want to go in and mid-season and, and without a pre-season and, and be left to firefight. So I don't see that even if, I mean, he's, he's actually an Everton fan, Eddie Howe, but even if they went for him really hard or, or went for Marco Silva or went for Sean Dyche. I, I don't really see that it's the appealing job that it would have been even five or six weeks ago. As, well, as and would, as that would, would they end up with a season desist letter from Bournemouth as well? But that's, uh, I suspect, well, yeah. um, no doubt, we'll find out the appointment um, with Mr Mashiri's rather strange communication methods. We'll, we'll no doubt find out <laughs> via his, our friends at TalkSport, randomly announced. Uh, seems to be, um, that's certainly how Unsworth found out that he wasn't going to be uh, the new manager, which, um, say, takes us back to the uh, the word shambles. But I guess we shouldn't, um, uh, we'll get complaints from uh, Southampton if we don't actually mention them. Um, they did uh, stroll out 4-1 winners. And as uh, someone who's got a uh, QPR season ticket, every time Charlie Austin scores, it pains me to the core. But he's, yeah, I mean, he's just a quality finisher. I guess his job's made easier when no one actually marks you or challenges you for headers, Bill. But um, that was sort of Charlie Austin to a T. It was, yeah. Um, and Southampton haven't looked such a bad, such a uh, disorganised team as people have made out this season. Obviously, they've had a great problem scoring. But... Um, you look at the table, and they're now in the uh, in the top half, albeit among just at the top of a cluster of teams close together on points. But they they haven't looked too far off this season. It's just been the finishing, um, and of course that's where Austin comes in. Um, he he's a, a very good finisher. Um, Shane Long is a, a good all round player, but um, again he missed a decent chance yesterday. His finishing record isn't as good as Austin, so so maybe Austin is the. Uh, the, the final piece in the jigsaw to keep Southampton in their natural habitat of comfortable mid-table. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from Austin or otherwise and every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League and the FA Cup. And it's just £8 for an eight-week trial. So uh, sign up, sign up. Talking of goals, Ollie, your favourite goal of the weekend in the Premier League? We were talking about it beforehand, and I, I mentioned one which, uh, unfortunately, Bill had beaten me too. So I, I won't, I won't name that one. Um, I think my 
favourite in the circumstances would be um, Gilfie Sigurdsson's um, probably rare flash of brilliance this season. That, 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 that shot for the um, for the Everton goal at, at St Mary's was was fantastic. I just loved from an aesthetic point of view the way the way it went in, sort of crossbar, post crossbar. You know, it, it, it was it was beautiful and all too rare illustration of his talent. This That's because he's stuck on the blinking wing, isn't it? Most of the time I've I've seen them. I mean, he's you know he's a he has to be a centralist player, doesn't he? And um, well, yeah. anyway, we're back on the Everton shambles. But the consolation is he has got Ollie's goal of the weekend. So only because Bill beat me to the other one. Well, and talking of which, Bill, far away. That other one is the goal by Zerdan Shakiri for Stoke at uh, Crystal Palace. Uh, most of his goals tend to be uh, pretty amazing, and this was no exception. He picked up the ball just inside the Crystal Palace half, and it just showed great balance to sway this way and that. There were various players, Milovievic and Schlup were close by, but he kind of evaded them, and then Sacco came, and there's a nice kind of body swerve to get beyond Sacco and then a, obviously a decent finish at the end to put Stoke ahead unfortunately for him uh, Palace came back to win but it's a, a good memory nonetheless both chosen losing goals we've got no time for losers on this show they, they, should, be, they, should, they should have been banned Huddersfield 1 Manchester City 2 and um, well Ollie, uh, we've sort of all looking forward or have been looking forward to the Manchester derby as the, you know this was going to be sort of the classico brought back to Manchester. Guardiola Mourinho competing for a title. Um, actually, is it now over as a as a title contest and just a bit of theatre? The gap is eight points, and you could say it's nine points because of City's enormous goal difference, and that's enormous by this time of the season. But if United were to win that, um, it would it would look a bit healthier from their point of view. That City are picking up one or two injury problems. They've got that difficult Christmas period to get through and Guardiola hasn't really come through emerged successfully through the um, you know a, a, a Premier League winter yet he, had, he found it very tough last year but if, it's, if this sounds like I'm um, convinced that Man United are going to make a game of it I'm, I'm not really I, I think Man City are on, a, are on another level um, I just feel that that is the chance for United that game on um, a week on Sunday is the chance for them to pull them back and, and I'm sure uh, as, as demeaning as Mourinho might find this I'm, I'm sure he, he would have found himself um, impressed and, and perhaps inspired by some of what David Wagner did yesterday because I, I thought Huddersfield made it about as difficult for, for City as, as, as anybody has done over the last few months I mean there was that draw against Everton early on um, but Huddersfield seemed to get it right in terms of denying them spaces, in terms of getting the wingers back, and it was almost like a, I don't know, it was almost like an an 8-1-1 at times, the way they were playing, but it but it worked. It wasn't just sit deep and sit tight and cling on for dear life. It was a well-thought-out plan and a well-executed plan that, that came very close to getting a, a result. So, but, um, but bearing in mind, this is Jose we're talking about. I mean, they're going to... Um... Uh, well, try and kick the crap out of them, aren't they, Bill? I mean, that's you know they're they're not going to match them. You know, even Man United with the most expensive player in the country and all the uh, ability they have, they're just going to have to try and get blinking physical and stick a finger in the eye, literally or, or metaphorically, aren't they? Yeah, or kick somebody in the groin like uh, Lukaku at the weekend. 
Um, the table says eight points and it, it doesn't lie at all. There's, there's a, a huge gap between the clubs at the moment. Just looking through Manchester City's games, I think they've deserved to win every game comfortably. They've, they've been so, uh, so good this season. I mean, even when, as you, we say, it's, it was a different challenge yesterday facing Huddersfield. But they came through it. They didn't, they didn't panic at all. They just carried on and on and on and... They absolutely deserve the victory, albeit with a fairly streaky late goal. Um, but yeah, you, you can't see uh, Manchester United um, being anything other than scrapping against City, really sitting back. I mean, even against Brighton uh, at the weekend, United were so disappointing for if you're looking for an entertaining game. It was so cautious. I mean, on paper, that's pretty much the easiest game of the whole season, you know, home to a newly promoted team. Brighton player for player, obviously United are far more talented, but they just, they were just sat back. There was just no uh, pace, and uh, this is Mourinho's style. I mean, I'm not saying it's necessarily the worst style in terms of achieving success. Well, how do you think um, he'll approach it, uh, Ollie? Um, I think we'll see Fellaini, um, and I think the fa- I think the presence of Fellaini, whether as a sort of um, false ten or as or as a sort of just nuisance in midfield um, I think that will define United's approach it means that they'll go direct I think it, it means that they'll be wanting to make it all about you know, winning the first ball, winning the second ball um, and sticking an elbow out it, it, well sticking, yeah, certainly elbows out and um, it sounds rather sad when, you've, when you're a club that have, well, when you're Manchester United for a start but when you've spent, I don't know, whatever it's been 500 million or something over the last three or four years. I mean, they spent fortunes on creative players, and yet they are not even close to, you know, from a creative point of view, from an aesthetic point of view, and from a stylish point of view, to, to what City are doing. And if this sounds all very unfair on United, it's only really by comparison with what City are doing. Um, United are the best of the rest, and 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 have been reasonable this season. Is a little bit disappointing over the last. Sort of six weeks or so, but but City just do look in in a on another level, and they look like a, um, a group of players, and it's particularly the attacking creative players, who just are, are loving playing for, for for their manager. Whereas United, you know, no matter which players he, he plays in the front four, he seems to be um, angry with uh, with at least two or three of them, and and it's that is a pattern that we've seen before with Mourinho, and and you think well. It, if your flair players, if your if your sort of attacking players are never ever living up to your standards, or you know, even if it's Eden Hazard, even if it's Oscar at Chelsea, Fabregas, whoever, um, Martial, Rashford, Fellaini, Mata, um, maybe the approach is is the problem. It's an approach that has won a lot of trophies, but it's an approach that seems inferior, in my opinion, to um, to what Guardiola is doing at, at City. Bill, you're our stats man, not necessarily our gambling man, but I mean, City got 25 games left. Chances of them going uh, unbeaten? Um, yeah. Can you, give us, uh, can you give us some odds? Uh, oh, uh, I'd say, uh, let's say about one chance in four, perhaps, of doing that. They're, they're looking good. I mean, the, the, the front the six, uh, they've got a very settled team. I mean, they've got, a, obviously, some decent backup players, but they've got a very settled team. So they know how they're playing. They've got the Fernandinho uh, defensive midfield, then Silver and De Bruyne just ahead of him, and then three ahead, and that's three from four, with Sterling, Sane, Aguero and Jesus. So they really, uh, they're developing a, a good understanding amongst themselves. And obviously Sterling has come on a lot this season, I think, and he's, he's finishing better, so that's um, 
that's good news for for England. I mean, he was one of the uh, the culprits at Euro 2016 when England created a a lot of chances in the the group matches and um, scored with very few of them. He's been improved by Guardiola. He's he's finishing better. That that's good, a good sign for the summer. Is he, um, does he, well, on, yeah, on that, Ollie, it's a good good point. I mean, he's in but Southgate's changed his system now. Does Sterling fit in? I mean, if you're playing wing backs, if you're playing a, a sort of well three five two. Um, that, that Southgate was using. Where where does Sterling fit into that? Well, I was surprised that it was three five two in the last match. I, I would have thought the best the best way forward is to have somebody like Sterling or, or somebody like Ali or, or or maybe both of them playing off Kane, not necessarily wide, but you know three four two one or something rather than the three five two. I would I would think there would be um, scope for Sterling to play in that. Definitely. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't really played well for England, and I, I don't think that's unfair to suggest that. But you know, it makes you think it's more about England than about him because he, his talent is clear. And on the question about will City go unbeaten, I would be very very surprised if they if they go unbeaten, just because they're you know, pleasingly they are a team who take a lot of risks. They're not going to they will never play for a draw. They will ne- you know, they will never go into the last. 10 minutes of the game and think, oh, well, we'll, we'll just take what we've got here. They, they will always go and, tr- and try to win and try to win big. And when you do that, you, you, you do take certain risks that make it likely that you'll um, concede at the back sooner or later. I think one record that they will break, undoubtedly, in my opinion, is, um, is, is, is the number of Premier League goals in a season. I think the record is, I think, 103 held by Chelsea um, in the Premier League era. Um, City are currently on course for 122 or 123, um, which uh, yeah, I, I think um, I think they just will break that record, and they, they could well break the points record too. I, th- I think they look that good. Well, if you do want um, to put a tenner on uh, City to go unbeaten, Bill Edgar is offering a, was it four to one? So um, get three to one if there's one chance. Three, oh yeah, sorry, yeah, that's, that's why he's the stats guy and I'm not. Um, but anyway, send your uh, tenors in, and um, we'll we'll see you at the end of the year. Um, but we should. Uh, I, I don't want to pass um, this weekend without um, talking about the Rainbow uh, Laces um, campaign. Um, and I guess, well, that word laces, maybe we should start with because it did seem to me. I, I, I'm I'm struggling to think of a player who actually wore the laces. We certainly saw armbands, captain's armbands. We saw, you know, plenty of sort of um, signalling of it. And and um, great. I mean, uh, I think it's an important part of the debate. Our colleague Alex Kajelski wrote very well on it last week about why it matters and um, why it's important and what football can do to um, advance awareness and discussion about a a subject like this but uh, Ollie did you see um, the actual the laces themselves does does that matter or is it just important that we're raising awareness and having this discussion at all? Well, it was it was left to um, it was left to players to make their own minds up. And I think a few at Tottenham certainly did. I'm told um, one or two at Crystal Palace did. But to me, you know, the fact that it was it, it is called the Rainbow Laces campaign. I remember a couple of years ago when this was was first introduced by Stonewall. It was, you know, a very good initiative. They sent these rainbow laces to um, I think every player in the Premier League and I think every player in the Football League. And I think a handful. Wore them. The referees. Did, am I right in thinking that all the referees wore them? And am I right in thinking that you know a few of the managers uh, wore them, and and the captains wore them? Now this to me suggests, and I haven't got this. Don't know this as a fact, but this to me suggests that 
the initiative from Stonewall has been, right, can we get all your players to wear these? And it's been this kind of compromise of, well, no, no, look, look, we, we don't want to force people to do this. We don't want to force. Well, they pretty much force people to wear poppies. Is this less of a less of a worthy cause? I think it's great in that there has been progress, great that the, the more awareness has been, been raised, but it does seem to me like that there's a resistance among players to... Um, to wearing the laces it's, it's, it just seems like a statement too far for for them and I think maybe if it was just introduced as something that Premier League clubs do and players do um, that it's mandatory um, would any of them have a problem with that I don't know Bill what do, you th- do you think it was pushed enough <coughs> do, you, do you think that it's getting through to, to fans um, I think the fact that it was uh, introduced at all is a, a very positive sign you know the, the Wembley Arch, uh, all sorts of logos everywhere. It was very visible, actually on laces. It's, it's hard to pick out, really. You know, you really pause your video and study a, a, a boot which happened to be very close up. So, I mean, it, it was very visible, which is a good sign. I think um, the poppy comparison is is very interesting. Uh, I think it's much better to uh, not make it compulsory because with the poppies, it's once it's compulsory, it becomes meaningless. I mean, it shows that, say, an individual club supports the idea, but it doesn't show that the players support the idea individually. James, at James all. McLean ends up getting ludicrous hate mail just yeah. for exercising his exactly. free expression. I mean, it, it, it's a political statement. Perhaps everybody in the world thinks that's a good idea. That's absolutely fine, but you shouldn't really be forcing people to wear poppies anyway. You know, it, it, But in any case, as I say, it becomes meaningless because it's not a decision you've made. Um, so I think the idea of letting players uh, decide if they want to wear the laces is a, a good thing but um, but in general that yes football uh, pushing this idea of inclusiveness is obviously uh, good any sane person doesn't mind which partner people choose to have in their in their life do you think it will actually affect uh, Ollie whether um, the moment when a player feels he is able to come out I remember I did an interview with um uh, Thomas Hitzelsberger obviously retired before before he came out, but he uh, the debate often becomes about the the fear factor, you know, fear of the reaction from either fans or, or teammates. But he actually made the a very important point, I think, about becoming the champion, the sort of standard bearer. And he basically just you know the intensity of the focus around him when he came out. He said he wouldn't sort of wish that on a serving player who has to try and sort of keep his career on track while suddenly becoming the centre of this frenzy. Um, do you think this, you know, this the Stonewall campaign is going to help reach the point when a player can feel free to talk about his sexuality? I think it undoubtedly will help, but um, but I, I agree with the point that um, Hitler Sperger made to you that that there would just be uh, you know an enormous circus around it, not not through the players um, being. Uh, by any means, but there would be, you know, the media attention, the public attention, you know, it would be positive, it would be warm, it would be uh, appreciative and isn't this great, but it would just be, you know, the, the player would, I fear, for an amount of time, would, would come to be sort of defined by that he would be gay footballer X, and I'm talking about media coverage, I'm talking about public reaction as well, I think it would be positive, but whether it's positive on somebody's career to, to have all of that attention on them, I don't know. I, I, I think I think it, I can well understand why a player would would think, well, I'll I'll just get on with my career. I'm not going to I'm not going to. 
bring my private life in, into it. it uh, I, I could talk comfortably about that when I'm when I'm retired, but 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 why bring it upon myself now? It's becoming that uh, I think more than the fear of homophobic abuse in the dressing room, which I just don't think would happen. Uh, homophobic abuse on the terraces, which um, probably would happen in a really small way. Um, but I, I, I think it's I think it's that issue. I think it's the attention uh, and and the, the the sort of intensity of that glare that would probably be the most um, persuasive argument against it at the moment. We shall now uh, give you your fix of Gab. Raphael Honigstein has written an excellent book on Jurgen Klopp. So here is Gab talking to uh, Raphael now. Delighted to be joined by Raphael Honigstein. You can see him on, on BT Sport on uh, Champions League nights, and uh, you can uh, hear him on various podcasts and read him in various places. But what you want to read him about is this book that you wrote, Raph, about Jurgen Klopp, imaginatively titled Bring the Noise. I want to get to something that I was struck by that, that I learned about. The fact that young Jurgen Klopp had, while he was a professional footballer, a bit of a striker sometimes and a defender, and this whole stuff with his dad. I thought like, now in writing this, because this is not an official biography, you're not ghosting it, was he super forthcoming about all this stuff? He wasn't uh, at all forthcoming. He uh, immediately... So he cried into his private life. Yes. Um, he... Um, immediately through his agent said, I'm not going to get involved in this book at all. I've had offers in the past. I've had people who I've known for months for 30 years who said, let's do a book. And I've always said no, because I only want to do a book once I retire. You know, that was fair enough. But what he really did uh, was help me with the research by way of just allowing everybody who I approached to talk to me, because it would have been easy for him to say, don't talk to this guy, because that was one of the most surprising things in the research former managers, former players, people who have no real contact with him anymore, people like Ilkay Gundogan, you know, at Man City, what do they care about Klopp necessarily? Almost to a, to a man, they first said to me, I, I need to ask Klopp first. So he still exerts that kind of power on people. and they, It's like he's Fergie or something. <laughs> Who yeah. does he think he is? It is a bit like that. It is a bit like that. And he told everybody, including his sister and the people, you know, that he grew up with that, yeah, you can talk to this guy. I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of a guy who's in his 20s and knows he's not going to be able to make a living off what he made in, on the football pitch because he wasn't good enough and thinking of alternatives. And I think in some countries, they're like, all right, I'll go and buy a pub or I'll invest in a nightclub. But Klopp was so methodical, was so committed, and, and that's really what strikes me. Yes, uh, but there's also something I learned from talking to um, Pete Kravitz, his number three who knew him at the time and then became an analyst um, and is still with him as as the chief scout and uh, opposition analyst. And he said that that kind of willingness to win and uh, sort of the ability to squeeze every last ounce out of yourself in terms of performance, even though he was a very limited footballer, comes not from that kind of sporting mentality that we often witness with, you know, big sports personalities. They just can't stop, can't stand losing, etc. With him, it was more an existentialist fear of not being able to support his family. He was making a few thousand um, marks at the time, playing for Mainz in front of 3,000 people. They would get um, fairly lavish bonuses for winning, but in the words of Guido Schaefer, one of his uh, teammates, the promise we never won. (laughs) (laughs) And they were fighting not just against relegation, but actually for survival, because the first thing that Mainz would have done 
in the third division is to sack all these guys who were on these ridiculously huge contracts by their own standards of 3,000 or 5,000 marks uh, a month, which is before tax and really nothing. So he worked in a pub in his spare time. He worked, uh, he was a sports science uh, student. He uh, did an internship at a TV company. And for him, I think fear, real fear was a, was a real driving factor. And I think it only changed into something more pleasant and, and enjoyable and more sort of infused with passion and then the, the real sporting side of it once he became a manager. And, uh, of course, had a similar battle to fight initially, but then very quickly things turned and then mine suddenly became from this joke team into a team that was regularly fighting for promotion and then achieved the miracle by their own standards of actually getting up and, and staying up. He also spent some time in between, I think it's in between Mainz and Dortmund, um, on television as a, as a pundit. I'm always kind of curious about that because he was actually very good at that and how much of a role did that play in him getting the Dortmund gig that played a huge role it played a huge role for a number of things first of all I think it played a huge role on on the way German football was thought about and seen and talked about because he pointed out things that were much more tangible and didn't sort of go into this pop psychology stuff that most pundits at the time were saying, oh, they don't want it enough, they're arrogant, they're this, they're that, but actually saying, you know what, the right back's completely in the wrong position. Here's the evidence. i show it to you. Is that a, sorry, can I just jump in? Is that a little bit like what we've seen here, Neville and Carragher on yeah. Monday night? Ten years later, yeah, absolutely. before was like, pace, power, motivation. Um, well, what Klopp did was remarkable because not only was he able to explain football sort of in layman's terms to everybody and and quite visually which was very powerful but also he used a language that wasn't patronizing to people he talked to somebody the way he would talk to somebody in a pub who might not understand football that well and don't forget this is different when you do confed cup or world cup you have these casual viewers you have 60 million people watching half of them might have never seen a football game before or just watching because it's on and he still somehow managed to connect with them you could connect both with the stay-at-home mom who just checks in once a year and with the stathead and with the force of his personality and then Dortmund when they made the decision it's unthinkable now but he was after getting relegated again with Mainz and failing to get promoted, he was a second division coach when they appointed him. But he did it. It's like Watford with Marco Silva. Yeah. History repeating itself. Yeah, but Watford are not Dortmund. And they could do it because he had such a presence and was such a kind of personality that people responded to him, even though he was... Some people could have described him as a guy, you know, who had failed, who had been relegated, and uh, maybe he's a busted flush or one-trick pony or whatever, but... He still had that huge charisma and that credit in the bank from people seeing this guy can really explain football. And we've seen what he's done with Minds before for him to appoint it. And they actually put him on advertising banners when they sold their season tickets. He was, their story that they sold to people was, Jurgen Klopp is our coach. We will play interesting football. Come buy a season ticket. They had a problem at the time selling enough season tickets. The whole time he was at Dortmund, what, what struck me though was man, these guys like, they buy and sell players really, really well. And, you know, you look at, like, Lewandowski and, and, and Pisek and Kagawa and whatever. So many examples. And I thought, wow, he must get along really well with that Michael Zork guy. Or Michael Zork, even though he sounds like an alien, he's actually, like, really good at what he does. And one of my concerns when I went to Liverpool is you go from Michael Zork to Michael Edwards and other people who... I honestly... All I know about these people the people who buy and sell guys at Liverpool, is what I learned from 
Liverpool fan sites and Tony Evans because unlike in other countries, these people never speak to the media. They're faceless people. They even gave them the, they even the sort of this amorphous title, the committee, right? And you tell me about how Klopp sees these people and how they see him because whenever the opportunity to sit down with him, he's always like, yeah, well, we'll always make the decisions together. Um, but in the end, it's my responsibility and that's how it is. I can't say it's, I can't say it was his fault. And I kind of thought that's a pretty grown up stance for for a manager to take. Is Is this really what he's like? I can't tell you what really happens behind the scene. If he's really happy that missing out on Virgin van Dijk, allegedly the technical staff told him, sorry, there's absolutely no one else. It's van Dijk or no one because our centre-backs are so good we can't, we can't think of anyone else. Sorry. It's a message that didn't go down well with the fans and with the public because it's easy to ridicule, but I think it was directed to his own players and it's something he does quite often just to back them up to say in public and privately, I still believe in you. It's not about, you know, I need all these other players because you're terrible. Um, and I think he was towing the company line by not putting the blame for this, what was clearly a fiasco in the transfer market at the feet of, of those people who didn't quite make the deal happen. Whether there was any alternative B option or not, I don't know. But I've been told that he relied on the information given to him by the people who do that for a living and they identified him as the candidate and they fought until the end still that they could make it happen and when it didn't that was it I'm sure he was not happy about it I'm sure he did not think okay great but I think he conveyed a message that he felt was necessary for in-house rather than protecting himself making these excuses playing the political game that yeah. other managers would have played at that point talking to players talking to, to former managers to, to sport directors they very rarely felt, I think, that he was telling them something different to what he was saying in public. I think he is a guy that doesn't really throw people under the bus and doesn't want to be political, whether it's with his players or with his um, superiors. I think that's part of this longevity. If you stay seven years at a, at a club and then you do it again, you do it because you don't play these games because eventually after playing these games, you usually kind of run out of angles and then... You got not a leg to stand on. With him, it's different. As I understand football, it made no sense for Liverpool not to sell Philippe Coutinho at those numbers. And again, there's many different versions where there's a 120, 140, 150. But knowing that Nabi Keita was coming, knowing that Salah was there, knowing you can only play with 11 men in one go, guy doesn't want to be there, why give yourself the headache? Other people say, I'm an idiot for saying that. I got the impression from Klopp from even what he said he said the Coutinho thing was out of his hands he says if he stays great if he goes great I wouldn't put it that way because he is still the guy that decides everything FSGR are kind of in awe of him and if he says tomorrow that I want all toilet seats to be red because white is not a positive colour they make them red but I think with this in this particular case I think he was just very agnostic he did not care enough how can you be agnostic view? on because he player? saw because he saw First of all, I think he saw all the reasons that you saw. He's been in football in the same position enough to see that it doesn't always go the way of Lewandowski, who stayed one and a half years, extra years or even two, and kept performing. It can also go the other way when people are denied a big move and basically they're useless because they stop performing. I think he knows this. He's seen it often enough, even at places like Mainz, you know, where big players suddenly wanted to move to Frankfurt because it was their dream to play for Frankfurt rather than Mainz and caused a big fuss for months and months and then stopped scoring goals. Um, 
But he also saw FSG's point of view, which was very political. I think they did not want to be seen as, again, selling their best players. They wanted to make a statement that those days are over. And he was quite happy to, to go along with. He sees himself as a coach. And I think that's something that, from an English point of view, many people don't get their head around easily. And this goes back to your talk question. He doesn't really, I think, think so much in terms of constructing a squad and value. And, you know, do I have to sell him for 150 or do I need to sell him only for 100? I mean, I don't think these are really questions that he concerns himself with. He wants to have a good squad. He wants to have players who are motivated, who play well, that he feels will perform for him. And as long as that, there's a chance of that happening, he wants to work with his, with his player. And I think that's for him really is the bottom line. Super interesting thing I found talking to Hummels when he said, you know, it basically took him three years to get it right at Dortmund. And before that, it was kind of madness because they were playing this pressing game that didn't quite work out and they conceded loads of goals to finish sixth and fifth. And then Hummels and Spottish comes in and says, actually, it was a joy to play because the guys in front were putting so much pressure on the opposition that they never really had time to play proper ball. So all you had to do as a defender is just look and you wait. They're under so much pressure, they cannot play a really good ball. You just have to be in the right position. And uh, it was a joy, joy for you to defend. And clearly Liverpool are not quite there. And clearly Liverpool have also individual problems. I think it's fair to say that the goalkeeper doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. And that's a problem that they haven't quite solved yet. And yes, they could have done with Virgil van Dijk. So I wouldn't absolve Klopp from any blame, but I don't see that it's necessarily a black and white thing. Oh, there's this guy who plays this wonderful football but can't defend. I think that's what they said about Pep Guardiola last year. The book is uh, Bring the Noise, um, Jurgen Klopp's uh, uh, unauthorized biography by Ralph Honigstein. It's out there now. Ralph, Guillaume Balaguer did this. He sort of had a, a haiku competition where you could win a signed copy of the book. You don't have to do this. But I would suggest that... It might taste some more lowbrow than that. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that. But um, maybe uh, if people want to send in a Klopp haiku, will, will you choose the the best one? I'd be delighted to. On, on Twitter and then send them a, a, a signed copy? Yes, of course. So please send your Klopp haikus to at, at Honigstein. Honigstein and, yeah. and you can CC at Marcotti while you're at it. And um, he will send a, a, a signed copy of the book to the top 175 entrants no skip good luck to the, to the top few entrants uh raf it's been a pleasure thank you so much thank you okay let's move on to the quick hits and uh ollie one for you chelsea peg back liverpool at anfield thanks to uh, a late william cross i think we can call it rather than a shot uh, this was the most hyped game of the weekend. So why did Fabregas, Firmino and Mane all start on the bench, Ollie? Well, because they played in the Champions League in midweek and although Liverpool's game was Tuesday rather than Wednesday, Mane and Firmino were, were felt to be exhausted by it. Um, they played a lot of games recently and, and Klopp clearly felt that the best hope of winning the game was was to leave them on the bench and, and, and bring them on later on if, if they were chasing a win. Um as Chelsea, when they, they'd gone to Beku and and got back early hours of Thursday or 5 a.m. on Thursday or something like that, and I think it's understandable really that players were were not felt to be in the condition, the, the peak condition needed to play a game like that, which was a disappointment as a as a spectator. You know, you you would hope that the best players were there, and I think the quality in both attacks was a bit diminished by that. But um, but you know, needs must really, and it, it ended up looking like. Both managers were, were sort of 
grudgingly content with what they got in these circumstances. Manchester United are hanging on to City's coattails, or, well, barely hanging, I think, but they edge out Brighton 1-0 at Old Trafford. And Ashley Young plays a starring role again. Bill, is he now United's first-choice left-back? And uh, if so, could he even go to the World Cup with England in that position? I think, uh, yes, Mourinho uh, does see him as uh, United's first-choice left-back. He certainly has a chance of going to the World Cup. On the face of it, England have two top-class uh, left-backs in Luke Shaw and Danny Rose, but Luke Shaw is being ignored by Jose Mourinho at uh, Manchester United, so he's not getting any sort of practice. So he, at the moment, he, the World Cup looks impossible. Danny Rose seems to have some sort of issue with Pochettino at Tottenham. He's, he's coming back very slowly from his long-term injury, so uh, so maybe a vacancy is opening up at left-back, and certainly... Uh, Young has extra use in the. Uh, he's very versatile. He can play on the right and he can play in midfield as well. So certainly he he must have a, a chance. West Brom take a priceless point from Wembley as they draw with Spurs, and they might even have had all three. Gary Megson's done that bit, but uh, Alan Pardew is odds on to become the next Baggies manager. Would he be your choice, Ollie? Uh, he, he would certainly be a choice. Um, I, you know, I, I think the main criticism of, of of Pardew over the years has been well. He's all very well for six, twelve, eighteen months, but it, things always seem to sort of nosedive after that. And I think in in West Brom's position, where they're struggling at the at the bottom end of the Premier League, I, I think they would go for that. I, I think the the idea of a, a, a six month, twelve month, eighteen month bounce um, to take them to the end of next season, probably as a Premier League team, would would, would more than fulfil their immediate requirements. There would also be, I think. Uh, a slightly more expansive approach than they saw under under Pulis. And, and um, so I, I can see the appeal of that, certainly. Bill, for the third meeting in a row, Arsenal score a last-minute winner against Burnley. This time, Alexis Sanchez scores from the penalty spot and Sean Dyche is raging, and we mean raging, after James Tarkowski is judged to have pushed Aaron Ramsey. Did Dyche have a case? Well, it, was, it wasn't clear-cut. I think Tarkovsky definitely pushed Ramsey. Was it strong enough? I think it probably was. So I think it should have been a penalty. Um, having said that, Ramsey uh, certainly threw himself to the floor. Interesting comparison with uh, Nias of Everton, who's been booked for diving. Um, the problem with Nias was not that he dived and is therefore a cheat, because almost every player does that. His problem was uh, misinterpreting the, the amount of uh, contact uh, from Scott Dan and thinking that it was going to be enough contact for the referee to give a penalty. As it turned out, it wasn't enough, so therefore he got banned. Players dive and therefore cheat, and uh, they have to judge correctly that there's, there's enough contact, and Ramsey got it right. Yeah, well, it's one of those ones for me. If you uh, if you can understand why the ref's given it, then um, you should you should crack on with it until we have the VAR, and that's a whole different debate. But anyway, Ollie, speaking of late drama, Crystal Palace secure just their second win of the season thanks to Sacco's stoppage time goal against Stoke. They lost their first seven games, but they're now three points from safety. Would this be the greatest Premier League escape, and uh, will Roy Hodgson be knighted at the end of the season? I don't think it would even be Roy Hodgson's greatest Premier League escape. I mean, you, you go back to what at, at, at Fulham, um, where it seemed that they were completely doomed. You saw, you go back to one of Leicester under Nigel Pearson, where they seemed completely doomed with ten games remaining. The good thing about Hodgson taking over in, the, in this situation was that there was so much time to to get things right. He didn't hit the ground running, but but you've seen the 
the improvement, that they look more solid, have more belief, and, and the fact that they're scoring a last-minute winner in a game like that says something for, for, for their spirit, and it, it's all encouraging. They can stay up. I think I think there are probably six teams at the moment, probably six teams with fairly big reputations that, that would be battling to avoid relegation. I, I think it looks like a, a real scrap, and I think it will go down a very long way. Can't get enough of Roy Hodgson's goal celebration, surely. The little, <laughs> the little dancey jig sort of punch in the air. Uh, sadly, we didn't see that as much as we would have liked to uh, against Iceland. But anyway, uh, Mark Silver's stock continues to rise as Watford batter Newcastle 3-0 at St James's Park. Bill, we've raved about Silver enough on this podcast, so let's let's talk about the team. Would you like to single out any Watford player for special praise? Yeah, you, you, I mean, there's a structure that Marco Silver's created. And, no, you uh, see, you're talking about Silver again. Yeah, see, sorry, yeah. sorry. Uh, let, OK, let me go straight to, uh, uh, let's say, Christian <laughs> Cabaselli, the, the, the centre-back. They've had Watford, have had Kabul, Cathcart, Prodal, all injured this season. So Cabaselli has been the, the senior centre-back um, and he's just warmed to the task, played really well. He was the centre of three centre-backs uh, to start with on Saturday. He moved to the left when uh, there was a substitution, so he, he did well in both. He marked well, he got a couple of good blocks in, did a couple of nice long balls in the build-up to two of the goals. He's done really well. Whether he gets into Belgium's team at the World Cup with Alderweire, Elton Vertong and Vermaelen ahead of him, it's unlikely, but he should be in the squad at least, and he's uh, certainly giving me a good time at Watford. Dicko, one for you. It's the, the World Cup draw on Friday. Should we even care, given how England have such a tendency to let us down? Oh, uh, quick hit. This could be a whole book, as our colleague Henry Winter has written. Well, it's going to be balls out of the bag, and England are in the second pot, which is sort of good news, which means they can't get Spain, who are also in the second pot with them, um, but does mean they can get... Um, Brazil or Germany and um, we get down about England but the fact is that there'll only be one thing that gets 20 million odd people watching uh, TV all together at the same time in 2018 and that would be a big England World Cup game so let's look forward with well not complete despair for now. Hi there, I'm Paddy Von Baer and I'm here with your weekly update from The Sweeper, The Times' fantasy football service. Uh, you can, of course, sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football and you'll have an email dropping in your inbox every Friday full of tips. It was a slightly strange game week, this one. Uh, no one scored more than Marvin Ziegler's 14, uh, the Watford defender, um, an unlikely hero. Uh, Raheem Sterling shone while Leroy Sane was quiet. Charlie Austin finally started a game and scored twice for Southampton. But uh, early warning would steer clear of their players for now. Southampton's schedule gets a little bit tricky now, so don't be fooled by that false dawn. Uh, Elsewhere, Pascal Gross managed three bonus points despite Brighton losing to Man United if you needed further evidence of his fantasy potential. Eden Hazard and Mo Salah were once again on fire as Chelsea and Liverpool drew one all. And uh, a nice little boost again for our ongoing love affair with Ruben Loftus-Cheek. He scored for Crystal Palace and continues to be a lovely bargain. In terms of our weekly tips, uh, there were some hits and some misses. Will Hughes was the highlight. Uh, the Watford midfielder scored for a second week in a row for eight points. He's only 4.6 million, so that looks like a nice 
bargain midfielder to side with. Eden Hazard uh, set up a goal for Chelsea in their draw with Liverpool, um, picked up eight points, and uh, Harry Kane was back to goal-scoring form with eight points as well. There were some frustrations elsewhere where uh, Ben Mee was denied a late clean sheet. Wilfred Zaha could have scored a couple. Paul Pogba was denied on the line. And uh, Leroy Sané hit the bar with an excellent free kick for Man City. Don't be fooled by his blank against Huddersfield. There are more points coming from him. And we're back into things immediately as there's Premier League action midweek. A full schedule of fixtures Tuesday and Wednesday, which means uh, good news for Sweeper subscribers. There'll be a bonus email landing in your inbox on Tuesday morning. It does mean there's no time for a full weekend roundup on the Timesport website. But who needs that when there's more hints and tips landing in your inbox as of first thing Tuesday morning? Uh, you can sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football. That's it for now. Many thanks to my guests today, Bill, Edgar and Oliver Kay. Remember, it's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Just search The Times online and this season you can access highlights of every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League and the FA Cup. You will be absolutely delighted and possibly relieved to hear that uh, Gab Marcotti returns next week when he will be uh, leading discussion on the latest chapter in the Wenger-Mourinho well, it says rivalry here. I think um, pretty um, nasty feud uh, at various stages. But yes, it's Arsenal Man United, and um, tune in next week. Thanks very much for joining us. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.